Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, electronic dance music, and heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, ragtime, Latin music, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast, and check out our brand new Substack newsletter and website at LetItRollPodcast.com. We've got archives of every episode sorted by genre, era, guest, co-host, and mini-series. It's also a great way to support the show if you can afford it. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. Today, we continue the Let Motown Roll miniseries with a recast of Nate's 2019 interview of Adam White, who co-authored with Barney Alice, Motown, The Sound of Young America, which focuses on the business side of Motown and Barry Gordy's right-hand man. Email us at letitrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. Time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, joined by Adam White, co-author of Motown. It's a beautiful uh, Beatles anthology-style coffee table book. Motown, The Sound of Young America is the full title. And he co-wrote it with Barney Ailes. Adam, welcome. Thank you. Good to, good to talk to you, Nate. And, and tell us about Barney Ailes. Who is Barney Ailes and why is he co-writing a book about Motown? Okay, allow me to make one uh, a small correction. His name is Ailes. Um, that's it, it looks like Ailes, but it's pronounced Ailes. Um, he's of Italian background. Uh, Barney's actually short for ba- Baldassar, so just to complicate things. But um, I, I met him more years than I care to think about. Uh, uh, met him for the first time um, in London after a show uh, with Gladys Knight and the Pips and Chris Clark. Um, I was a Motown fan way back then, went to see the show, and after the show on Shaftesbury Avenue, there was a pub down the road, um, which I went to, and lo and behold, there was Barney and a few other Motown people at the um, at the bar, and I just introduced myself because I sort of knew who he was. 
I was fortunate that I'd had a um, an aunt living in America who could occasionally send me copies of Billboard. So I was interested in always interested in the business of music um, as well as the music itself. So I wanted to know more about these people. And that kind of research, if you like, um, gave me insights into who Barney was and why it mattered and so on and so forth. So I've always been interested in, in that side of the business, um, what I call the backroom believers of Motown. And um, over time, uh, Barney and I stayed in touch. And a few years ago, when I decided that I really wanted to do the book that you've now seen, um, he and I started to uh, to get serious about it and talk, and he gave me the insights and the background to his many years with the company and everything that he achieved. And you start the book out with the story of the 1968 riots and fires in Detroit uh, and weave that in with the story of Barry Gordy and Barney Ellis. Why did you choose that incident to start the book? Uh, and uh, f uh, forgive the correction, by the way, it's 1967, the riots of July 67. The reason I, I started the book with that really was a sense of drama, but it was one of those key moments in Motown's evolution. I think it was probably the point at which Barry perhaps considered uh, that he would eventually move, he would eventually leave to Detroit. Um, it, clearly, it was a traumatic event for the city as well as for the company. Um, it didn't harm the company per se, but it must have shaken a lot of people. And it clearly, um, you know, it clearly was a distressing time for Detroit. Uh, but it was also, a, you know, a dramatic incident. I mean, uh, although the Motown building wasn't damaged, uh, it was shot at um, and there were bullet holes in one part of the buildings there. Um, and even though they carried on business as usual throughout that distressing time, it was one of those things, I think, that served to put Motown into a slightly wider context for the purposes of the book, a, a social um, setting, a cultural setting, as well as, as well as the music. And let's talk about Barney's role in the company a bit. In the foreword, Andrew Luke Oldham uh, says that Barry Gordy Jr. may have been the Diaghilev to multiple African-American Nijinskys, but it was Barney Ailis who dealt with the white rack jobbers and one-stop operators who were perhaps only a half-step removed from the jukebox racketeers. Ailis had the vision to take the business international at the time when the likes of Beatles manager Brian Epstein and myself were fumbling our way into the new world. Tell us a little bit about that. What exactly did Barney do at Motown? Well, you know, he brought them experience in the record business. I mean, Barry had um, this amazingly young team around him. Um, he had obviously had experience in the music business as a songwriter for Jackie Wilson and a successful one, albeit not very paid very much. Um, so he knew the business, but the team around him was pretty young and inexperienced. And I think when he first met Barney for the first time, he realized here was someone, A, who he got on with. There was some sort of connection, um, synchronicity between the two men, which we might talk about in a second. But he also realized soon enough after talking with him that Barney'd had six years of experience in that business, um, working first for Capitol Records and then for Warner Brothers, and then um, for an independent distributorship in Detroit called Aurora. And the importance of all of that and its connection was to Motown was that 
Barney really got to know how the business worked from the ground up. You know, he started out as a stockroom boy. He graduated into the sales department at Capital. He went on to promotion. And I think it's important to realize Capital was one of the major record companies of that time in the 50s. You know, they, they were a very powerful business. They had big artists. They had Frank Sinatra. They had Nat Cole. They had Judy Garland, Gene Vincent, you know, even Ed Townsend, who later went on to produce records with Marvin at Motown. So there was a powerful company, which meant that you dealt with a lot of people, distributors. Uh, you dealt with radio in particular. You got to know how the business worked. And in fact, I think it was that experience at Capital that also attracted uh, attracted Warner Brothers when they started to set up their own record business in uh, in 1958-59. They were looking for people qualified to to help. Uh, Barney's experience obviously paid a part in that, um, and he spent the best part of a year working for Warner's. Unfortunately, it was a time when Warner's, as a record company, it really wasn't making very much progress. It, di it didn't do particularly well. I think their biggest hit record was um, Ed Burns' Cookie, Cookie, Lend Me Your Comb, uh, which Barney remembers selling the hell out of in Detroit. But it wasn't a very substantial record and it wasn't a very substantial time for Warner's. So they closed some of their branches down. Barney was out of a job. Um, but one of the advantages of working for Warner at that time is he went to at least one of their big uh, meetings in L.A. So, again, meeting lots of people in the business, uh, meeting people in radio, meet, meeting distributors, getting to know how the business worked. So when his third job in the business came along, working for an independent distributor called Aurora, um, he'd, he'd had the time and put in the effort to to know how it worked and at Aurora, um, he began dealing with independent labels. So they distributed labels like Sue, which had Ike and Tina Turner, Scepter, which had the Shirelles, VJ, which had the Impressions and a number of big other R&B artists. So uh, again, he got to know and dealt with people in the independent R&B business, which was an asset that was going to help him uh, when he first connected with Motown. So I think that range of experience equipped him perhaps better than anyone else um, who Barry could have found. And they clearly had a, a personal um, synergy. They, they met, they, they, you know, they were good together. They obviously got on, they were very competitive. They were social animals. Um, and when they first met at a radio station in Detroit, Barry was interested in the record that Barney was carrying, which happened to be uh, one of the records put out by Barry's sister's label, called um, Tri-Fi, and he was curious as to why Barney was uh, was promoting that record at the radio station. So they got talking, very inviting him over to Hitsville um, shortly thereafter, and they began to develop a relationship. At first, Barney at Aurora began to distribute a few Motown records. So again, Barry got a sense of what this guy was able to achieve. And at that point, I think we're talking about 1961, Shop Around had been Motown's first big crossover hit, number two on the Billboard pop charts, um, certainly a breakthrough record for the Miracles, but uh, it was a hell of a job for Berry and the company to get paid for that by independent distributors. And the reason they're important in this story is because uh, Motown, like so many other independent labels, didn't have their own distributor 
distribution facilities. They had to depend on independence all over the country. So um, the importance of them was they relied on the independent distributors not only to put the records into retail stores out there in across the United States, but also to promote and market those records. So Motown didn't have a national, a big national sales and promotion staff, for example. So they relied on the distributors to handle the promotion and marketing of those records out there in, in the wider US. Clearly in Detroit, Motown knew what they were doing. They had the relationships and they did in some other cities because they knew the R&B market. But Motown really didn't know the pop market. And when Shop Around was a massive pop hit, uh, they had difficulty getting paid by the distributors for that record. And I think that was probably the point at which Barry thought, OK, I need someone who really knows how to handle this. And he recruited Barney um, at the company on staff in 1961. And Barney began to put that experience and that talent to uh, to good use. A few months after he joined, Motown got its first number one pop hit, which was the Marvelettes Please Mr. Postman. And from that point on, really, the company grew with the immense creative force that was beginning to become apparent, particularly likes of Smokey. And then in 63, Holland Doja Holland um, and some of the others, but also having that business smarts to go along with it. So they really were growing on two fronts simultaneously, on the business side, thanks to Barney, and on the creative side, thanks to Berry and the team of, of producers, songwriters, um, singers and musicians he had recruited. Cool, and I want to take this moment to play our first song, which is uh, Mary Wells' My Guy. And after we hear it, I'm going to ask you to tell us a really crazy story about this song on the business side. So this is Mary Wells, my guy. And that was Mary Wells doing My Guy. And so, Adam, there's a, just the craziest story. I, I never heard this until I read your book. But there was a bootlegging issue with this song in New York City, and Barney had to go out and solve this problem. Who, did, who turned out to be the bootlegger here? <laughs> Barry Gordy's second wife, as it happens, Ray Noma. Um, she had fallen out of favor with Mr. Gordy. Uh, in 1963, uh, you know, they, the, the, the relationship didn't work after a while. They'd been very close, obviously. Um, they'd been married. Uh, but uh, when the big chill set in, Ray went to New York to set up a satellite office for New York, uh, for Motown in New York, excuse me. Um, and it went OK for a while. Um, Ray signed George Clinton as a songwriter, for example, among others. But what happened was the longer she was there, the colder the air got between her and Barry and the distance between her and Detroit. And so it, she was finding it extremely difficult to get money, financial support from Detroit to keep running the New York office. And she decided, for good or ill, that uh, she would bootleg or have bootlegged copies of Mary Wells' My Guy, which was one of Motown's biggest hits in 1964, um, unfortunately, the mistake she also made was that um, New York, uh, Motown's distributor in New York, or one of its, um, 
was a company uh, owned by Morris Levy, who was pretty well known in the business um, for a number of reasons, but certainly not someone to fool with. Um, he had been the head of Roulette Records. He had owned nightclubs in New York. Um, he had connections with the mafia. Um, he was not someone to fool with. And by having bootlegged my guy in New York, in the city where Morris distributed the legal official version of that record, not a smart thing for Ray to do. Morris called Barney and said, what the hell is going on here? Um, and uh, Barney, who happened to be in New York at that time to see a Broadway show, had to spend the night going around finding out who was selling the bootleg and, and, and where it originated. And that's how he discovered that it was uh, it was Ray, Miss Ray, as she was sometimes known, who was responsible. And um, uh, let's say the, the uh, frigid air between uh, Detroit and New York got even colder at that point. Uh, it was an unfortunate mistake for Miss Ray. And I, I, I think that um, Motown, you know, it didn't affect Motown, but it certainly affected her. And one other player who came into the picture peripherally around that was the RIAA, who went to Barney and told him that they too knew about the bootlegging, but chose not to tell him because he wasn't a member. What did that do to the long-term relationship? Yeah, they, that really wasn't. I mean, obviously, RIAA's job was to look after its members' interests in a variety of ways. Motown didn't belong to the Recording Industry Association of America. Um, I believe that at that time, uh, you know, you had a percentage of your revenues had to go to the association if you became a member and Motown really didn't want that to do that. It was still a relatively small business. So they didn't belong to the association. But when Barney found out the RIAA knew about the bootlegging, he was pretty pissed off at that. And he made a vow that they would never join the RIAA, which certainly for his time at the company um, was a vow he stuck to. But it also illustrates, if you like, the difference between independent companies and majors um, and how uh, the uh, RIAA was at that time, you know, looking after the interests of the big companies rather than small go-getting indies like Motown and some of the others. Yeah, and one thing that you make very clear in the book is how small they were when they started and how rapidly they grew. I, I enjoyed you, you tend to note the annual revenue every year. And it's just amazing. If you chart it out, it goes past geometric way into exponential, you know, hockey stick internet company. It really does, doesn't it? And and look, it, it, that happened. It was the Supremes were responsible for that. That's really when the explosion happened. Up to that point, I think the company was learning. It made mistakes. It had hits. Um, it went through a whole number of different processes, but really the Supremes blew the door off and that changed everything. It changed everything for the company. It obviously changed everything for, for the group, um, but it also changed Motown's perception in, in the business, in the industry. You know, when you think about it, between 1964 and 65, they had five consecutive number one records on the Billboard Hot 100. That's a pretty amazing accomplishment for any company, for a major, never mind an indie. So that was the point at which I think the industry began to take notice of Motown. And you also have to remember that much of that achievement was during the British boot beat boom when the Beatles were dominating all these other British bands were huge successes in America so for Motown to be able to achieve that while uh, that that other trend in music was going on was uh, was considerable so it elevated their stature in the business 
And obviously, uh, uh, it made it easier for them to get paid because distributors knew that they were capable of producing hit after hit after hit. And so they, they got paid better as a result of that. And another aspect of the business that really helped Motown get going in the UK was Joe Beatty, their publishing arm. And they uh, had a number of big-time covers by big British artists. Who was covering Motown songs? In the yes, UK? practically practically everyone, actually. Um, uh, not always uh, terribly well. And when I was a young teenager listening to that music, boy, did I hate the Beatles versions of those Motown songs. Um, I couldn't for the life of me imagine why anyone would want to hear the Beatles sing Please Mr. Postman when you could hear the Marvelettes. But the fact is, and this is something I grew to realize later, um, that the publishing royalties from those covers by the Beatles and many others were a tremendous shot in the arm for Motown, as you say, for its music publishing arm, Jabet. So it gave them income at a time when it was tremendously useful. And to their credit, the Beatles were willing to acknowledge and name check their influences. So when, as they began conquering the world and they were asked about the artists and singers who influenced them, John Paul, George and Ringo were willing to talk about Marvin Gaye and Smokey Robinson and the Marvelettes and those other artists. And again, you couldn't buy that kind of publicity. So um, that was very fortunate. And it, it came down to the caliber of the music. The Beatles and many other British bands covered those songs because they were great. And the Beatles also name checked Motown in the States and actually could be credited with part of the Supremes huge breakthrough in 64 and 65. Yes, I think that's right. There's no question that, that, that those name checks began to make people in, in the U.S. think, well, you know, who are these people who, if not, who are the Supremes? Because at that point, early um, 64, no, forgive me, uh, of course, early 64 was before the uh, Supremes broke through. So, yes, when the Beatles broke through in February 64 onwards, through that summer and through that extraordinary year, as the Supremes and as Motown began to succeed, the recognition by the Beatles undoubtedly brought Motown to the attention of many, many music fans in the U.S. And they had a couple of, of helpers in the U.S. breaking out, two in particular, Dick Clark and Ed Sullivan. How did, how did those two help boost the Supremes' career in the U.S.? I think Ed Sullivan is probably, arguably, the more important of the two. You know, Dick, obviously, American Bandstand was a hugely popular show with with kids um, at that point. Um, but what Ed Sullivan did was brought Motown to a wider audience. And you think about, you know, the 30 or 40 million people that would watch Ed Sullivan on a Sunday night, suddenly as Mary Wilson told me for the uh, for the book, you've got these three great-looking girls on national television reaching into tens of millions of American homes. That really began to make a difference. And Sullivan was a supporter of, of black music and black artists. He'd had a number of artists, black musicians of all kinds, on his show before that. But he really took to the Motown acts, in part because they were so well choreographed, they were so good looking, they were professional and they had style. And those are the kind of acts that he wanted on his show. So after the Supremes, virtually every one, every other act signed to Motown got some sort of exposure on the Ed Sullivan show. And again, you know, you, you couldn't buy that kind of exposure. That was tremendous in terms of the crossover, reaching the wider audience that Motown strived to reach, going beyond the R&B and the basics. They really reached into America's homes at that point through the likes of Ed Sullivan.
And around this time, the Supremes start this string, an amazing string of number one hits. And uh, the next song I'm going to play, Barney Ellis had a special role in it coming out as a single. So this is the Supremes, Come See About Me. doing Come See About Me, which was originally an album track. And then tell us a little bit about how Barney uh, got that song onto the singles charts. Well, um, you know, the the it was a very competitive time in the business. And the first two number one hits that the Supremes had, Where Did Our Love Go and Baby Love, as I said before, put them on the map. But it also made their competitors wonder about some of the music that was coming out of Motown and whether they could do cover versions. So... Um, a, uh, a company out of Philadelphia um, decided that they would uh, they would cover "Come See About Me," take uh, take cover the song from the album, put it out as a, as a single, and at that point, Barney realised that firstly they had a real strong entry with "Come See About Me," but they couldn't afford the competition. They didn't want the song to be stolen, to be a hit for anyone else. So he jammed that single out, and again, it became their third consecutive number one. And one thing we haven't really touched on, but that you make a point throughout the book, is it was pretty unusual for a white executive to be working for a black company. I mean, there really weren't that many black-owned record companies in the U.S. at this point. Like, talk a little bit about what it took, what kind of risk Barney was taking personally and socially to be the white face of an African-American-owned company. Yeah, it's a, it's a very good point. Uh, Mr. Gordy himself has said he thought... He was audacious, asking him to join the firm. Um, Barney, uh, I don't think Barney considered it a risk, although Barney's father certainly did. He didn't think it was a very good idea for him to be working for uh, a young, unproven black businessman. Um, but, you know, Barney's background was quite interesting because when he when he was younger, you know, when he worked for his godfather's construction company, he it was an integrated cement team and Barney used to take the checks of his co-workers to stores to cash them because those stores wouldn't cash them for black people so I think that his his upbringing his social circle and his open-mindedness meant that he didn't really care any more than Mr. Gordy did about the color of, of your skin he cared about doing good business being successful but he also understood the record business, the music business, well enough to to know how to do that. And yes, indeed, he was, for many, the white face of Motown. He would go to radio stations and he would promote those records. And there's a, a, a funny story that both he and Mr. Gordy tell about the time that what they would find from time to time is when someone would say to them, let's say a, a radio station DJ or a program director would say to Barney, you know, how come you're working for this this black dude? Um, and Barney would say, well, actually, it was my company, but we lost it. I lost it in a card game. So they would make fun of the fact that they were defying um, the, the norm in terms of who was working for whom. 
but they really didn't care. All they cared about was being successful and crossing over to the widest possible audience, something that Mr. Gordy has said throughout his career. He really didn't care what color the record buyers were as long as they bought the music that Motown was making. I think Barney had the same view. And Barney built a national sales team and relationships with national distributors, but he wasn't just on the sales and distribution side. He also took over the collections and that's where Barney's background as an Italian-American came in. Talk a little bit about that and the, and the rumors there. Yes, I think, uh, I, um, well, look, I think, you know, the music business, like a number of others in the U.S. at that point, was, was certainly had its, uh, had its mob connections. Um, a vital part of the, of the record business in the 50s and the 60s was the jukebox business. You know, that's how music got exposed. That's how people heard music. And the jukebox business certainly had plenty of mafia connections. So um, it was it was uh, when you had someone like Barney, who is a outgoing and determinedly Italian guy running that company. Um, and you were a distributor thinking, am I going to pay Motown or am I going to pay so-and-so? I think the choice came down to deciding that he would pay Motown, whether or not. You know, he believed that Motown had any mafia connection. The fact is that both Barney and, to some extent, Mr. Gordy didn't mind that they were thought of in that connection, that perhaps it didn't do them any harm, that uh, distributors would think, oh, maybe we better pay these guys first. And even more importantly to distributors, they knew Motown had another hit in the pipeline every time. Yes, that's that's exactly it. That's it. That's where, if you like, Barry's original thought of, of the company as a production line, um, able to turn out hit after hit after hit, was a successful business plan because it meant distributors could rely on the company. And indeed, if they wanted to get Motown's next hit, and remember that Motown said had several different labels. So you had Tamla, you had Motown, you had Gordy, you had Soul, you had VIP. And Barney tended to put some of those with different distributors. So if you wanted to get the next Motown hit or the next Tamla hit, maybe just pay up. Be sure that uh, they were going to get the next hit. It wasn't going to go to some, some other com uh, distributor. And one of the aggressive moves they made, which at first seemed like a pretty disastrous mistake, was a decision in 1965 to take an entire crew, or the whole Motown Review, to Britain and do a tour. Tell us a little bit about that tour and where it went wrong and where it went right. Yes, I mean, I think they were basically ahead of their time. Um, now, the Supremes, and as we talked about, Mary Wells had had a few hits in the UK, but really, most people in Britain had no idea. They certainly didn't know what Motown was. They had no idea what the Tamla Motown Review was. So when Motown decided to put that tour on, in the uh, in the late winter and early spring of 1965 they had a really hard time selling selling tickets now first of all they went into big venues they went to the big old odeon cinemas which were big theaters and they did two shows a night so they were already setting themselves up for a bit of a fall um and some of the artists on the bill, aside from the Supremes, nobody knew who they were. Every, uh, everyone knew who the Supremes were because they'd had hits in the UK. But Stevie Wonder, Martha and the Mandelas, the Miracles didn't mean anything to most music buyers at that point in uh, in Britain. And the show was not a success. They couldn't sell out. They did well in London, as you'd expect. But in most other parts of the UK, the houses were, uh, were pretty empty. The show I went to in my hometown of Bristol uh, that first show, I'm not even sure there were more than a few dozen people in the audience. 
And so it was indeed um, a failure. Less so, they, they went on to Paris for one show at the Olympia after the end of the UK tour. Um, and that was a reasonably successful show. Uh, and actually, they recorded an album there and, and put that out in, in the US. But the tour was not considered a success and certainly wasn't. I think it gave Motown pause. It made them realize they had more work to do. It also made EMI, their UK business partner, realize that more work was necessary. And they put in the time. And ultimately, it, it came good. In 66, things started to come back. And they began to make an impression. And then when the artists came over, not as a review, not in one package, but as individual artists performing, they began to succeed. They would sell out venues. They became popular. And one thing they did that was a success on that trip was they were able to do a special episode of Ready, Steady, Go with Dusty Springfield. Yes, yes, well noted. That's absolutely, I mean, that's uh, one of the, the great music TV shows of the 60s. Um, Dusty, of course, was a hugely popular star in Britain at that point. Um, one of the incidental points of that tour was that the Motown Review taped the show before they went on tour, but it didn't go on television until after the tour. So any promotional benefit they had hoped to have from having the show on TV was lost. So by the time the TV special came out in April 1965, you know, the tour was over. But it absolutely, um, absolutely helped Motown. It's a, it was a tremendous show. Dusty was deeply in love with, with the music of Motown. Um, the acts, as you'd expect, as I talked about earlier, when you, when you think about the Ed, Ed Sullivan, these, these artists were choreographed. They looked great. They had style. The music was sensational. Um, so it was a, a tremendous, a tremendous artistic success, commercial. Um, it was pretty, actually pretty adventurous for the network that put that show on to, to make it in the first place, a company called Rediffusion, because those sort of shows on British television at that point were not necessarily a guarantee of, of, of ratings. Indeed, at that point, you know, there was a show called the Black and White Minstrel Show, which was still broadcast on British television and was still popular. So if you put that, imagine the, the concept of that show and uh, and the Motown show, it, it seemed a bit odd, but it's a, a major landmark, well worth searching out on YouTube or at least the parts of it that you can find. And it seems like, though, as soon as Motown artists came back to Britain, like the Four Tops came back next the next year and Brian Epstein featured them at the Savoy Theatre, different story. Different story. Absolutely. Well, you know, by that point, by 1966, when the tops came in on November the 13th that year, Motown was about as hip as it could be. Um, Stevie Wonder had had a big breakthrough beginning of the year with Uptight and more and more of the records were succeeding. And of course, the four tops own Reach Out, I'll Be There was a huge hit in Britain. So very much a different story. And I went to the Savile Theatre to see that show and it was jammed with, you know, all the hipsters, everyone in everyone who was anyone in town in music or entertainment was at that show. And it was pretty extraordinary. I mean, the, the tops were the, the, the very peak of their game. And that kind of uh, really was another liftoff point. And indeed, the tops went on to do a big national tour a few months after that tour of the UK playing the Albert Hall, two shows, sell out. So indeed, Motown had well and truly arrived by that point in 1966. Cool, and let's hear that song, uh, The Four Tops, Reach Out, I'll Be There. 
And that was the four tops with their breakthrough, Reach Out, I'll Be There. And from then on, I mean, Motown becomes a British institution, basically. Yes, that's right. Um, Hits and, I mean, it's interesting, though, having said that, there were certain records that you would have expected to be big British hits from Motown, which weren't. It was still not always a slam dunk. The Tops and the Supremes, you know, pretty much guarantee they'd be in the charts. But some of the other artists struggled. And what happened a few years later was that EMI, Motown's UK business partner, began reissuing some of the original hits and getting bigger hits with them the second time around. So, again, it, it, take, it took a while for... Uh, Motown to make that connection to the the wider British public. And one of the reasons for that, by the way, is the BBC. You know, it wasn't until the late 60s the BBC introduced its own music pop radio station. Up to that point, you could only hear pop music, rock and roll on the BBC light programme, not 24-7. They had certain music programmes. The only way you could hear it regularly was on Radio Luxembourg, beaming from the European continent. So it really wasn't until the late 60s that that music radio made a difference to Motown. But Pirate Radio, which got going in the, in the, uh, the mid-60s, was a big supporter of Motown. So any kids who were listening to the pirate radio stations began to hear this stuff. So it was really just like momentum. You know, all of this piled up, and towards the end of that decade, EMI and Motown obviously felt that it was worth having a second go with some of those records that weren't a hit the first time around, and indeed they were successful. Jimmy Ruffin's What Becomes of the Broken Hearted, for example, was a top 10 hit Britain in Britain twice. So, you know, we Brits might have taken a minute longer to get with Motown, but when we got it, we were loyal, and those artists lasted longer, indeed. Some of those stars, um, you know, Jimmy Ruffin moved to the UK, Edwin Starr moved to the UK to live. They had uh, more stature and more long-lasting career in the UK than they did back at home. And in the late 60s, things started changing in the States for Motown after the riots in Detroit in 67 and then the assassination of Martin Luther King. Black leaders became much more militant and Motown started to become under pressure to hire more black salespeople. And Barney was in the crosshairs. He was in the crosshairs. He was in the firing line. Indeed. He he tells that story about, um, there was a, a meeting and, uh, Mr. Gordy said to him, uh, you know, I, I don't see any, you know, black salesman on your team, Barney. And Barney said to him, you only just now noticed. Um, but the fact was, there were not enough qualified, experienced black salesmen in the record business at that point. Now, obviously, that changed over time. But as Motown was growing, you know, they wanted hits and they needed people who had the experience and the ability. And it wasn't really until the 60s that those that experience and the ability of young black salesmen came through and made a difference. So Barney's first hire as a black salesman was a guy by the name of Miller London, and um, Miller told me this extraordinary story about the first time he went to New Orleans uh, to visit Motown's dis- distributor there. And, um, you know, he'd called ahead. He'd, he'd made the hotel reservation sometime before, showed up at the hotel before going to visit the distributor, walked up to the desk. And the white woman behind the desk said, can I help you? And he said, yes, my name is Miller London. I've got a reservation at this hotel. And she said, no, you don't. 
And Miller had brought with him a copy of the mailed confirmation that he'd received time some time before, presented to the woman who promptly tore it up in front of his face and said, you don't have a reservation. And he, at that point, Miller said, I think you better call uh, the distributor and who made the booking for me um, and, uh, and have a word with him. So the woman went away, evidently called the distributor. She came back. Miller got his room. But it was an indication, and we're talking about 1969, of how difficult it still was for, um, you know, black professionals, businessmen, anyone to get the kind of respect they deserved. But from that point on, um, there were more qualified people. Motown began to hire them. A number of them went on to become very successful in the company in the 70s, Miller being one of them. And so you can say that in a way, Motown helped, you know, lift all the boats. So it gave it gave people the opportunity to hone their skills and to develop um, into, you know, into successful business, both uh, businessmen and women at that company and elsewhere. And around this time, Barry Gordy brings in a guy who had been at a company called VJ, an African-American named Ewart Abner, who sort of in conjunction with Barry moving out to Hollywood and spending most of his time in California and getting kind of obsessed with the film business, how did Abner and, and Alice get along? I think they, they, you know, they got along. They were both hired. They, you know, they were both had the interests of the company at heart. Um, but my most accounts, Ab, as he was known, was pretty militant. And you were talking a minute ago about the late 60s, how the the social and political atmosphere of America was changing and how black militancy was becoming much more a force. And indeed, that was not something that Mr. Gordy was particularly interested in. As I've said before, you know, he was interested in being a successful business, making hits and wasn't really interested in in the, the color of the people who bought those records. He was a businessman. And so he was he understood what was going on with the black militant movement, but didn't particularly want to be engaged with it. He, he was smart enough not to to have no connection. And indeed, Motown started its own um, spoken word label called Black Forum, which had albums by Stokely Carmichael, Martin Luther King and so on released. But to go back to your point about Abner, Abner was pretty militant himself. Um, and I think as the atmosphere in the industry and at Motown changed, he was in a position to, um, you know, gain stature and to gain influence over Mr. Gordy. I, I don't think he and Barney, you know, they weren't um, uh, adversaries or anything, but they just had very different styles. You know, Abner was an incredibly eloquent man, and, and indeed I've heard um, some of his speeches, and and he does fire you, you up. There's no question that he was a very powerful speaker, motivating speaker. Um, Smokey Robinson told me that he would go and have a meeting with Ab just to hear him talk. He was that compelling. Um, so Ab was an important recruit at that time of change in the business, but he arguably wasn't the businessman that, that Mr. Gordy needed. I mean, he certainly when Ab took over as president um, after Barney left and after the company went to LA, you know, for a while the company did well enough. But I think um, Ab didn't have the breadth of experience that Barney did. And ultimately, uh, Mr. Gordy decided, since he was not having the hits he wanted, um, that he needed Barney back. And Abner left. 
Barney came back to the company and he, you know, took on a second life at Motown. But Ab also became an important confidant for Stevie Wonder. And um, for the rest of his working life, he absolutely played a part in the way the business evolved, the, the, the music business as a whole, and particularly had influence over artists like Stevie. And let's hear for our last song a pretty unusual thing that Motown put out as a single. We'll get to hear the voice of Barney Ayless. This is an important message from Barney Ayless. To be taken care of. However, something so important has come up that I stopped everything in order to personally discuss the situation with you. And instead of a phone call, I thought I'd cut my first record. There'll be no 200 on a thousand or no guarantee whatsoever. The important subject I'm talking about is Diana Ross's first single release, Reach Out and Touch Somebody's Hand. We have a number one record with Diana. The facts say so. We're already and that was an important record. message for Barney Ellis. Adam, tell us a little bit about that. How well, did that come about? <laughs> I guess it gives it gives your your listeners a bit more of a sense of the personality of that Italian American, and um, you can read between the lines, or you don't have to. That he expected uh, his distributors to be promoting that uh, brand new Diana Ross single, the first solo single of her career. Pretty. Um, you know, pretty religiously and pretty strongly. As it happened, it wasn't a big hit. Uh, and Motown changed gears. The, her second single was Ain't No Mountain High Enough, which went all the way to number one. But it gives gives you an idea of his personal style and um, how he motivated people to make Motown hits. And indeed, 1970, which was when that promotional record came out, was Motown's most successful year on the charts. They had seven number one uh, on the Billboard Hot 100 that year. Um, they never again reached that number. And uh, that was a remarkable uh, achievement. Uh, you know, acts, the Jackson 5 were a big part of that success, of course, but others too. So uh, Motown was really motoring at that point, even though it was on the eve of uh, moving out to L.A., and so to wrap things up, I mean, where do you put Motown in the context of American music in the 60s and American music in the whole 20th century? <laughs> well, I, you know, I think it's I'm, I'm convinced that Motown is the single most recognizable uh, record company in, in the world, in the business. I mean, in, in, in the broader sense, you mention the name Motown to anyone, more or less of any age, and they will know what you mean. They may not know the artist, they may not know the specific records, but they understand, they know what Motown is. And I think that's pretty remarkable um, for a company that started out as small as it did um, and, and uh, you know, fought in, in considerable wars, metaphorically, in the business. So that achievement to become one of music's most successful brands of the, of the 20th century and, and still to this day because it continues to exist is no mean feat. But also you have to acknowledge that they brought black music into the mainstream. Um, sure, other companies did it uh, before to some degree and afterwards, but I think Motown was really the engine that drove black music, rhythm and blues, whatever you want to call it, into the mainstream of music around the world. And those stars, some of those stars still have careers 50 years later. And I think that's a remarkable thing. No one will forget what Motown was and is. 
And uh, that's Adam White, and the book is Motown, The Sound of Young America, co-written with Barney Ailis. Adam, it's a great book, and thanks so much for coming on the show. This this book, I can't praise it highly enough. Whether you want an insider's account of the history of the business of Motown or just a beautiful coffee table book that you can flip through and look at pictures of the Supremes and the Temptations and Stevie and Marvin Gaye and the Jackson 5, it, it's a, a great contribution to the literature. So, Adam, thanks so much. Good of you to say so. I enjoyed it very much. Thank you. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Thursday, we feature another Let It Roll seance in which Nate discusses the late Henry Pleasant's Agony of Modern Music from 1955 in which the great critic disavowed the state of classical music at the time and to advocate for the primacy of jazz as the great music of the era. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.